Well, hey, good morning. It's good to see y'all this morning. So excited to be here. So excited for you to join us. I know it's a little warm in here for some reason. Just disrobe, whatever. No. But uh, hey, today we are, like I said, joining believers from around the globe. And they're all gathering for the very same reason. It's because He is risen. Like, that's why we're here this morning. Like, today is Easter Sunday, which is the yearly celebration of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth from the dead. He was dead when they placed Him in that tomb, and He was fully alive when He stepped out on His own power three days later. Like the events that we commemorate each year on Good Friday and Easter are what set the Christian faith apart. They're what make us distinct and unique from every religion and every philosophy in the world. They are, in a very real sense, what makes Christianity Christian. Because they are the gospel. Like the message of this weekend is what the early followers of Christ spread throughout the world. Because they're the promise that on the cross, hear this, that on the cross, Jesus took our place so He could give us His place. You see, that's the message of the Gospel. That on the cross, Jesus stood in for us. That He bore our punishment and our guilt and our shame so that He could give us His place. God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so the events that happened on this first weekend of April in 33 AD are the central theme of the entire Bible. They form the axis on which the rest of the biblical narrative rotates. Jesus Christ is risen, and because He lives, that means that death and the grave have once and for all been defeated. Like, that is good news, because that is where all of us is heading. I mean, that's the reality. Some of us will arrive sooner than others, but that is where we're heading. But death and the grave have once and for all been defeated. Satan has been disarmed and has has been put to a public shame. It means that salvation has been purchased once and for all. And because He lives, it means that our future, the life after this life, has been eternally secured. Because Jesus is alive today, right now, it, it means that believers can be confident of where they stand with God. No guessing, no hoping, no continued praying, no working so that maybe God may be find us acceptable and invite us in. We can know right here and right now where we stand with God. And for everyone else in the entire world, regardless of where they are spiritually or what they believe personally, because Jesus lives, we can trust all of His promises. For example, on the night that He was betrayed, 
right after the Lord's Supper, that first gathering in the open room, Jesus told His followers this, recorded in John 14. He said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then, as the conversation continues, beginning in verse 18, Jesus comforts His troubled disciples with a promise, and then He guarantees that promise and all others with something that they will all witness themselves. He promises in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And here's his guarantee. Because I live, you also will live. Guys, because Jesus lives, we can trust all of his promises. Like that's our source. That's our authority. Like I've had conversations with many people over the years and just thinking of a conversation I had with my own brother, Frank, just about what he believed and how he knew for sure, or did he know for sure whether he would go to heaven when he died and whether his sins are forgiven or where he stands with God. And he told me something about a dream that he had with my mom and telling him everything was going to be okay. And that was his source. That's what he was trusting in. And so I just said, Frank, where's your evidence? Like, how do you know? What's your source? What are you basing this on? Where is your proof? Who's your authority? A dream? A dream you had, and you're basing all of eternity on that? You could have just had bad pizza. I mean, that's your source? Guys, here's my authority. Jesus Christ. And here's the proof. Here's the evidence. He rose from the dead. And so when I think of my eternity, when I think of the afterlife, when I think of what my hope is for the future, I'm going to bet my life and my eternity on the one who rose from the dead, who defeated death, who defeated Satan, who conquered the grave. That's our authority. And I love the context, by the way, of these promises that he makes to his disciples. I mean, the context of John 14 is Jesus is literally on His way to the agony of the cross. The Last Supper has passed. He's going to make His way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to ask His disciples to pray with Him for just a little while and they're going to fall asleep. And He's going to cry out to His Father, Father, if you have a plan B, now would be a good time. Like if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. 
And the only thing that will finally rouse his sleeping disciples is when the betrayer comes and kisses Jesus, calls him rabbi, and the guards haul him off. There will be a mockery of a trial, a scourging, and then a crucifixion where he will bear not just a cross to that hill, but he'll bear the sins of the world. See, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that he is on the path to the agony of the cross, and yet he stops and takes time to comfort his best friends in this world. Like, what was troubling the hearts of these disciples? Well, Jesus had just told them at the Last Supper, he said, one of you, 12, one of you will betray me. And so they turned to each other. Is it me? Maybe it's this guy. I mean, it can't, could it be me, Lord? No. And then Jesus tells them that their leader, kind of the self-appointed spokesman, Peter, that he would actually deny Jesus three times. And then Jesus tells them, listen, I'm going away. I'm only going to be with you for a little while longer. And you're going to look for me, but you won't find me. And where I'm going, you cannot come. It sounds like a perfect recipe for confusion and fear and uncertainty that would cause trouble to their hearts and them to begin to spiral out of control emotionally and ask questions like, um, Lord, why, why would you leave us? Like, is it something we've done? Have we, have we failed you in some way? Like we don't understand, this is not the way that this is supposed to play out. Just a few days ago, the crowd welcomed you. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why, Lord, would you leave us? And so Jesus answers their angst and he gives them the remedy for their fear and the remedy for all troubled hearts, hearts that are stirred up and tortured with these words. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He tells them, trust me and trust my Father. Like you can trust Jesus with your troubled hearts. You can trust Jesus with the unknown. I mean, after all, at this point in the lives of the disciples, they've been with Jesus for three years. Like for three years, they have walked with him. Three years, they've served with him side by side. Three years they've ministered alongside of Jesus for three years. They saw His miracles. They witnessed His power. For three years they heard His teaching. And then finally He gives them this test. In the midst of their confusion, He says, trust me. Trust me and trust my Father. What troubles your heart? What keeps you up at night? What robs you of sleep and robs you of joy? What shakes you up? It has to be something. I mean, because after all, if you're not afraid in today's world, then something's wrong with you. Because we live in an age of anxiety. If anything bad happens on the globe, you know about it immediately. Like it's promoted in your news feed. Like you know what's going on and then it's so easy to take that moment and begin to catastrophize. Think, well, it happened there. It's going to happen here. 
It's going to happen to me, but it's going to be worse. Like you get a call from the doctor and they have your test results, but they want to talk to you. They don't want you to just like read it on your my chart or whatever. And so you begin to think, oh my goodness, it must be bad news. It must be cancer. I'll be dead in a week. Like we all think that. I think that. Like that's just the world we live in. Like we expect bad things because guys, bad things happen. Like we live in an age of magnified uncertainty. And into this age, Jesus says the same thing he did to his disciples. Trust me. And trust my father. It's in the present text in the original language, meaning trust me and keep on trusting me. Trust my character. Trust my track record. Trust in His care. Trust in His promises. Keep on trusting. Believers, the remedy for troubled hearts is faith in Jesus. Which means the opposite is true. The root cause of troubled hearts is lack of faith in Jesus. When your worries are big, Jesus is small. So can you trust Him? Jesus asks His followers to trust Him right in the middle of their confusion. He doesn't offer any clarity. I'm going away and you can't come. He offers them no clarity. He just says, trust me. In the midst of our confusion, before the fog lifts and things begin to make sense. Like He wants us to trust Him when everything seems out of control. He wants us to trust Him when we can't connect the dots and see the big picture. He instead wants us to hold on to what we know is true in that moment. Like for example, the recent shooting at a Christian school in Nashville shook the faith of many of us. Right? How could this happen? What does this mean? I mean, just the day before, I was talking about persecution in the church and how as a result of like what we see, the darkness of our hearts and like what the Scripture tells us about the last days, it's not getting big, better, it's getting worse, it's getting harder to stand firm in your faith and then the next day, this happens and we're all left reeling because like what do you do when you just don't get it? Like you, I don't get it. Like, what do you do? What do you hold on to when you don't understand what God could possibly be doing? What do you hold on to when you can't see anything good that could possibly come from this thing? Well, this is what we hold on to. We hold on to what we know is true. And we let that truth inform what we don't understand. We trust Him. And we trust His Father. Like when we don't know what's going on, we hold on to what we know. God is good. God is sovereign. God's plans will not, cannot be thwarted. God has a plan for your life in Christ. And one day you will be in His presence robed in white. Those are promises that we can hold on to in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our confusion. 
When doubts come like waves, we can hold on to the things that we know. And so in the midst of His disciples' confusion, Jesus gives them something to hold on to. He throws them a life preserver. He gives them something to trust Him for. He makes a series of promises that will only be true if He's raised from the dead. It's like Jesus is saying, listen, if I can turn the worst thing to ever happen in human history, which is the cross, if I can turn that for your good and for God's glory, if I can bring light from that darkness, is there any promise, any promise at all too difficult for me to keep? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Guys, quit freaking out. Stop worrying about everything. My Father has so many rooms in this house. In fact, there's one for each of you. And so here's Jesus' promise. Because He lives, we have a home. Because He lives, we have a home. Like Jesus has personally prepared a home for us. He wants us to know that He's made room for you. Hold on to that. Let that be an anchor for your soul in the midst of a storm of doubt and fear. And when we get there, by the way, we won't simply be guests. It's not a guest home. We won't simply be guests in heaven as if we could overstay our welcome like some of y'all probably had relatives do that, right? No, we're going to be invited into the family. Hold on to that. Because He lives, we have a home. And can I just say, like at this point, like I wish, gosh, I so wish that I could communicate the enormity, the immensity, how colossal this promise truly is. But maybe this will help you just in a little bit, in a small way, grasp the magnitude of this promise. You have never been home. You've never been home. You've never experienced it. You've only gotten a glimpse of it from time to time, an echo of what it could be. You've had those moments at family gatherings or maybe in a worship service or time in the Word where you thought, this is it. Like, this is it. I wish I could camp out and stay right here and never leave. And so you spend the rest of your life trying to stir that up, holding on to that longing and wanting to recapture it, that sense of nostalgia because you experienced it once and you want it again. That is just a echo of heaven because you've never been home. Philip Yancey puts it this way. He says, faith is in the end a kind of homesickness for a home we have never visited but have never stopped longing for. You have those senses of special moments where you think, oh, I wish I could bottle this. Like for me, one of those came in 1995. It was the first year at Hill Country Bible Church of Austin that we did our beach retreat. I'd been at the church for just over a year, and we went to Panama City Beach with our youth group. The group was 
pretty small at that time, big for me, but not what it grew into. And we're bringing all the kids into the room and we played the same song each night as they were coming in. And it was this song that was really big in like the 90s um, by a band called Audio Adrenaline called Big, Big House. Anybody remember that? So by the third night, as they're coming in, like they're singing this song, like with audio adrenaline on the, you know, stereo, big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, and they're acting it out, a big, big yard where I can play football, a big, big house, it's my father's house. And it was so, guys, it was so special. I had this thought, this is it. This is it. Like, I, I want to live in this moment. This is so sweet. I want everybody to experience this. And it's like the Spirit of God, even now as I tell you that, is telling me, buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet. As great as that was, as fun as that was, that is nothing compared to what it will be when you finally make it home. C.S. Lewis explains it this way in The Problem of Pain. He says, there have been times when I think that we do not desire heaven. But more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of heart we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul. The incommunicable and unappeasable want. The thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends, or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. And then he says this, all of your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. But the day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. Church, you have never truly been home. Never. I mean, and I love, I love my home. Like whenever I go away on a trip, I mean, you've done this, right? You go away for a long trip. You stay at a place that's supposed to be great, but it's just not as comfortable as home because it's not your place, right? And then you get home to your bed and your food and your AC, and it's like, finally. Like when I went a few weeks ago to a monastery for a week, and uh, who knew that monasteries really aren't that comfortable? I didn't, right? I get to this monastery, and then I get snowed in. I'm in the mountains, like at the, in far north Oklahoma. I don't know anyone. And I'm snowed in, and my door to my little room doesn't lock. And I'm thinking, isn't this how horror movies begin? <laughs> the food, the, I mean, the, the, the men there, they were great. The food was terrible. Like monks don't care about food, and so the food was bad. The bed was hard. I wanted my own pillow. I wanted my own cover, Right? And then I got home, like I white knuckled it all the way home through the snow 
And when I finally arrived, it was like, finally, this is it. I'm so glad to be here with my wife, my family, my pillow, my comfy bed. Understand this, guys. In your very first minute in heaven, you will have a greater sense of being home than you have ever experienced. Because you'll be there for the very first time. Lewis concludes this way. He says, your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. So what does it mean to finally be home? It means there's no more wandering. It means the restlessness is over. It means the longing and the yearning are finally and fully satisfied. As St. Augustine wrote, O Lord, You have made us for Yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. Because He lives, we have a home. And Jesus says, verse 3, If I go to prepare a place for You, I will come back and take You to be with Me that you also may be where I am. Like two different times, Jesus says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I'm going away, and what I'm doing while I'm gone is I'm preparing a place for you. What does that even mean? Like, is heaven, like, really messy? Like, is Jesus like, okay, I want to take these guys to heaven, but, like, this place is looking pretty shabby. I need to sweep it up. I need to hang some pictures. I need to make it presentable for them. Or maybe there's like an angelic construction company that he serves the foreman over and he's like, no, we need to add 11 more rooms right on this side, on this wing over here. Is that what he's doing? No. Like to prepare a place where his followers can enjoy the presence of his heavenly father means that he's preparing for the possibility of sinners to be brought into the presence of a holy God. That's what he's talking about. Like our sin separates us from God. Now, and if it's not dealt with, it will separate us from a holy God for all eternity. And so the metaphor of room construction is really referring to Jesus going to the cross to secure us an eternal home. It's like Jesus, when He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, what He means is, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die and be laid in a tomb. And three days later, I will rise from the dead. When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, what He means is, I will bear your sins tomorrow morning. He means, I... Tomorrow morning, I will become a curse for you. When Jesus says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, what he means is, remember the, remember the prayer that God instructed Moses to have Aaron pray over the nation of Israel as the perpetual prayer of the priesthood? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. When Jesus prepared a way for you, what He's saying is, 
I made it possible for that prayer to be answered. In fact, I'm going to the cross to answer that prayer. Because left to yourself, God's face would never shine upon you. Only His wrath would be poured out on you. But I'm going to make a way for you. Jesus left His home so that He could give us one. See, it's only the message of the gospel does it guarantee heaven up front. Have you ever thought about that? Like we shouldn't shrink back. We shouldn't be embarrassed by what we believe because the message of the gospel offers heaven day one, moment one. Like it guarantees it in a promise from Christ Himself. If we simply trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord at that moment, not some later date, like you're trying this out and we're going to see if you work out, like if you get your act together, maybe you'll get this in the end. No, day one, moment one, you're offered eternal bliss in the presence of Christ Himself. Like the gospel begins day one, moment one, where every religion in the world hopes to end. Because He lives, we have a home. And then Jesus promises, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also uh, be where I am. Because He lives, we will be with Him. We will not be forgotten. He will bring us to be where He is. Hold on to that. Jesus tells them, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. I love this passage because in it, Jesus doesn't give any details about the place He's preparing. Like He just calls it a place. He simply says it's where I am. It's where He's bringing us to where He is. Because Jesus Himself is the defining characteristic of heaven. Like up to this point, He's talked about a house and a room and a place, but all of that fades into the background when he says, I will come again and I will take you to be by my side. Be with me so that where I am, you will be also. Like Jesus doesn't simply prepare us a destination. Jesus himself is the destination. Like he's going away so that he can bring us close. It's as if Jesus is saying, I am the room in my Father's house that has been prepared for you. So that if you believe in me, you will be invited in and you can enter in. Hold on to that. And then Jesus says this. He says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And I love doubting Thomas or maybe just honest Thomas. He says, Lord, what? Like what? Like we don't even know what you're talking about. Like we're still, now we're more confused than ever. Like, like, we don't know where you're going, and so we certainly don't know the way. To which Jesus replies, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because He lives, we have a way. Because Jesus lives, we have access to the Father. Because Jesus lives, we have a way for every promise He ever made for us in Christ to be fulfilled. So those of us with troubled hearts need to remember that Jesus is everything. He's the way to God, the truth about God. He's the life of God. 
And because we know him, we already know the way to the place he's talking about. Salvation is found in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus says you can count on this. You can bet your life and eternity on this. Because I live, you also will live. Like Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the final proof, the final convincing proof that he will keep every single one of the promises that he's made. And so if you have a troubled heart this morning, Jesus offers you a remedy. But what will you do with that offer? Like, where do you stand right here and right now with the message of the gospel? Jesus has prepared a place and there's room for you. Jesus left his home to give us one. Jesus went away so he could bring us close. On the cross, Jesus took our place so that he could give us his place. On the cross, Jesus was treated as you deserve to be treated. So that for all eternity, you might be treated as only he deserves to be treated. Guys, that's the message of the gospel. There's nothing there about go to church, clean up your act. Try harder, do better. Like Jesus alone accomplished everything, everything we would ever need for our salvation. He did it. I'm no more saved today than I was 40 years ago because Jesus is the one who accomplished it, not me. I love how Stott puts it. He says, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be, but God puts himself where we deserve to be. Guys, that's the gospel. In fact, this week, somebody posted this on uh, Twitter. I thought it was great. Uh, Makes terrible economic sense. This person thinks, that we should just pin all of the debt in the world on one guy and then kill him, right? Kind of just a hard reset. It's all going to be good after that. That's bad economics, but it's good news. As somebody points out at the top there, boy, do I have some good news for you. Because you see, somebody already did that. On April 3rd of 33 A.D., On a hill outside Jerusalem, three crosses stood and one in the middle bore the Son of God who had all the debt of the world placed on him, pinned on him. He experienced the wrath of God, the judgment we deserved. He died and he rose again from the dead. So what do you need to do with that right here and right now? Because the truth is this, all of your life, An unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. And the day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you've lost it forever. Hear the words of Jesus, this promise made possible by the resurrection. My father's will 
is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, you've never repented and come before Him and really understood what it means to have a relationship with God, maybe for the first time the cross makes sense, or maybe you just want to clear up any doubts, all you have to do is in the quietness of your own heart, just tell God in your own words, God, I know, I know I'm a sinner. And I know my sin has separated me from you. But I do believe that on the cross, Jesus took my sin. That He died and rose again. And I ask Him now to save me, to forgive me, to be the Savior and the Lord of my life. I surrender to Him. I repent of my sins that I thought were my friends but are dragging me down and wrecking my life and taking me to hell. I repent of my sins and ask You, rescue me, Lord Jesus. Save me and make me Yours. Father, we thank You that Your Word promises that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank You for this. In Jesus' name, Amen.